Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I'm excited to be recording this one for the first time in person. Got my buddy Nizar Taki on the show today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Dr. Taki is a plastic surgeon turned life coach. He's a student of human consciousness and the nature of reality. He helps clients take control of their realities and step into their true selves through one-on-one -on -one coaching. Dr. Taki, glad to have you on back on the show for another episode. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Well, I know, you know, during this time of, you know, COVID and the craziness, you've been keeping busy as far as, you know, you started doing these webinars. So tell me a little bit about your kind of the idea as far as starting that up and, and kind of what that, uh, what that's been like. Well, I've been wanting to share my ideas in large groups um, to kind of talk in front of people, but since COVID happened and the quarantine happened, um, obviously we can't meet with people in person, but it actually works to my advantage because I can have online meetings, online webinars where I can just come up with a topic and then broadcast from my house and invite you know people I know and people in a meetup group uh, that I organize and basically just kind of talk about the topic and then answer questions that people have. And I found that there's been a very positive response uh, because people have a lot of, a lot more free time now than they did before. And they really want to take this opportunity to learn more about themselves, to um, improve themselves. There's also a lot of, um, let's just say, reasons that some people find themselves anxious or stressed with what's going on. So they're looking for ways to respond differently, to, to, to respond in the most effective way possible in light of current events. And I think if I can offer a way to help them do that, then, then people are very interested. So it's, it, I really enjoyed doing it and, and I'm gonna continue doing that. And once, you know, once things open up, I'm excited to hopefully have some in-person talks as well. Absolutely. And now it's been, is it four that you've done so far in total? Three, four? I think we did our fifth one this fifth. week. Okay. Yeah. So I'm curious, which one do you think hit home the most? Which kind of got the most intrigue out of people? Good question. Um, hmm. The last, the one, the last one I did, uh, which was about flow state, um, was really useful for people because a lot of people resonate with flow state and they want to feel that feeling more. But I think the one that people really enjoyed was the one before that, which was about why you should stop trying to heal your traumas, uh, mainly because the title people are people, a lot of people are trying to heal their traumas and they think. Why, you know, why am I having so much trouble letting go of these things from the past? So when I tell them, hey, maybe there's a different way to do it, it really, it really resonates with people and it's very different than what most therapists or self-help uh, knowledge would tell you. But it's something that you can't really find elsewhere but is definitely uh, an accurate way of looking at how your mind works. Right, 
right? I'm just pulling up this, uh, this thing I saw you post on your Instagram recently that I think aligns right along with that topic, which I'll just read this, uh, this quote that you have. We do not grow because we heal traumas. We release traumas because we grow. That's a really interesting kind of paradigm shift. Exactly. You know, most people, let's say, look at somebody who's achieved a lot or has grown a lot and they see that that person went through some sort of a struggle, then they, then they grew or, or learned something and became stronger or better person. And so if you're just seeing that, you would think, oh, that person got stronger because they healed their trauma. The truth is you grow first by, by growing in your understanding of, of who you are, of what you are, of how your mind is creating reality. You can do that independently of addressing the trauma because it's a separate, it's just a separate process of learning. But by doing that, if you gain that understanding of how your mind is functioning in the present moment, you start seeing how there are certain, um, there's, there are ways that you don't have to act out past traumas or you don't have to act out negative beliefs. And it, it still takes work. It's not like night and day, like boom, you, you stop acting out negative beliefs or, or things from the past. But when you start seeing that you don't have to, then you start getting better at not carrying the past into the present moment and you basically release it. And so it has the appearance that you heal, heal the trauma and now you've grown in your understanding and in your way of being in the world. But it wasn't specifically because you healed that trauma that you grew. You grew and then the trauma got released. But the trauma was the catalyst that got you to go on this exploration. So if you had never had the trauma, you might not have sought out the knowledge that allowed you to grow. But I, I say in, 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 the, in one of my posts that it would be like if I broke my leg and during the time when I was healing, I started learning about how to eat healthy, how to exercise appropriately, and basically started changing my lifestyle, which let's say was like really careless and unhealthy before. Once that healing is done, if I've applied and I continue to apply what I've learned, then the next time somebody sees me, I'm going to look stronger and more resilient. And they're gonna say, oh, how did you become stronger and more resilient? And it would be inaccurate for me to say that it was because I broke my leg or because I healed my broken leg, right? That's leaving a huge part of the story out. What actually happened was I broke my leg, which served as an impulse to learn more about what's, what serves me and what doesn't. And by putting that knowledge into action, I became stronger, more resilient, less likely to have trauma in the future. So it was an impulse, but it wasn't the cause of my growth. It was something else. And so I invite people to maybe leave their traumas aside for now and learn more about how their mind is creating their experience. Right. And how much of this, because I know in a, in a previous webinar, you also brought up, you know, kind of the uh, well, sort of a theme of people kind of following their, you know, stories, right? Having a certain story that you're telling yourself about your life, about other people, but it's a, it's a subjective story, right? Mm -hmm. So how much does that kind of play into this of, of sort of not letting that, that story necessarily run, you know, your, your current and future life when it was a story that may not have worked out well in the past? Yeah, the way to think about stories is that if I was to ask you, who you are, you would tell me some description. But then if I was to ask your coworker, you know, who is Toby, they would have their own story. Um, you know, your friends would have their own, own story, your family members would have another story. So which one of those is you? 
obviously none of them, because you are you are way too complex to be described with with a story or with words. But we can't function in society without labeling things, because again, if, if you just saw something as the infinitely complex thing that it is, you wouldn't really be able to work with it. You wouldn't have a way to interact with it. So we need stories to interact with the world. Our unconscious mind is, you know, when you're, when you're a kid, your unconscious mind is learning about the world, it's absorbing information, it's learning language, and it's using that to label the things around it. And it's creating stories which we then interact with. So when I interact with you, I'm interacting with my story of you. It's very difficult for me to interact directly with the real Toby. And it works for, you know, for, for superficial interactions, but we do the same thing to ourselves. We have the story of who we are. And the issue is that because these stories, uh, which were also not just created by us, but handed down or told to us by our family members, by teachers, by society, we learned these stories when we were little, really little and we didn't know, we didn't look at them as stories. We were like, this is fact, you know, this, this is Toby, this is what he's like. I didn't think, oh, this is a story about Toby, but he's more complex. Or this is me, I'm, you know, let's say I, I try something and I, and I don't succeed. I think, oh, well, I'm bad at that thing. That's my story about myself. But I didn't realize that that's just a story and that I could simply disregard it and, you know, either create a new story or simply just go without stories at all, which is the best way to go. So the idea is that your traumas, whatever you've experienced in the past, if you're carrying it with you, then obviously it's part of your story, of, you, of yourself. And sometimes we take things that happen to us and we make them a central part of our story when in reality, they were more somebody else's story. Like whoever, let's say somebody um, was abused, the person that abused them was also functioning in a world of their own stories, which were probably which are obviously inaccurate and uh, dysfunctional, because if you really had a true understanding of, of the world and reality, you wouldn't uh, be abusing other people. So that person was acting out their own dysfunction, their own misunderstanding. But as kids, if, we, if that happens to us, if, if somebody is to, was to abuse a child and not take responsibility and say, oh, that was wrong, that was the wrong thing to do, then that child then thinks, oh, there must be something wrong with me, and that becomes part of their story. So the idea is like, if you can see that your mind is, is labeling things, including yourself constantly, the idea isn't to get it to stop doing that per se, but you don't have to take a story, um, you don't have to let it affect your life if you know it's just a story. Like if I told you that a friend of mine got mugged in an alleyway over there, you would stop going into that alleyway. But then if later I told you, oh, by the way, I made that story up, you would then realize, oh, I've altered my behavior unnecessarily. You didn't have to because it wasn't a real, it wasn't t telling you anything about the present moment, about how you should behave. And so in the past, your traumas maybe made you feel unworthy and that became a part of your story. But if you realize that didn't say anything about my worthiness, then you can start acting as if it didn't happen. Not say it didn't happen, but just not letting it be carried forward into the present. Mm -hmm. One of the big things I feel like you're sort of touching on is, is this whole you know idea of metacognition, right? Being able to think about our thinking. 
which is something as kids, I'm not sure exactly what the, what age that develops at, but you know, as kids, we, we're not we're not challenging our thoughts, we're not thinking something and then questioning the validity of it. We're yeah. just accepting, you know, what either our parents or society, you know, what what they're feeding us. Our minds are kind of like a sponge, the way I see it. You know, at a young age, we don't really have that ability, as you're saying, to to kind of decide what what your story is. Which seems like, you know, if it's if it's kind of faulty programming, could create a lot of issues for people. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, as adults. Yeah, yeah, and in a way, um, thinking about our thinking isn't isn't the solution either, because because it, think of it this way. It's your thinking that's creating your story. So let's say I think about my trauma, a trauma that I had a lot. That is, con that is carrying it forward into my story. Now let's say I start thinking about why I'm thinking about the trauma. Oh, I really need to stop thinking about that. I need to figure out why I'm thinking about this trauma. You're still writing the trauma into your story. The, the holy grail, let's say, is to slow down your thinking so much that the trauma doesn't appear in your thoughts, or if it appears, you don't provide it with any additional momentum so that it continues to persist in your thinking. So when you're thinking about your thinking, you're actually kind of, in a sense, dumping fuel onto the fire. What you really want to do is not operate from a place of thinking, but operate from a place of a flow, of just whatever is in the present moment is everything that you need to know what to do next. And what you create is going to be based on your intuition, your feelings, what feels right, um, without utilizing the past or, yeah, without utilizing the past as a decision maker for what you're gonna do next. Right, and I would assume, you know, probably, I'm just guessing, you know, as far as your experience with life coaching so far, I would assume that's probably a pretty common uh, roadblock that people run into as far as kind of taking those stories from the past. And, yeah. and so I'm curious, like what, what other big stumbling blocks do you see that people are running into as you're kind of, you know, working with them, you know, as far as helping them get to, you know, whatever mm -hmm. their goal may be. Um, the biggest stumbling blocks are, I would, you know, I would call it a victim mentality, which means different things to different people. What I mean by it is when somebody says, can you believe that this person did that to me? Or, you know, this person's treating me badly. I don't know what to do about it. And it's, it's a tough situation because they're, like I, I run into, into into people who want to change others. They say, this person should be different, I want them to be different, what should I do? And you just can't change other people, at least not by wanting them to be different. It's a paradox where you actually have to accept them as they are in order for them to become the better version of themselves that you want them to be. But so a lot of people are unwilling to do that. They say, if I accept somebody as they are, then I'm, aren't I promoting their behavior? But you know that that's that in my experience that's not the case. People tend to change only after you've accepted them, and when you resist how they are, they continue to they solidify in, in that way. The other thing is saying to somebody, well, if this person's really 
uh, riling you up, you know, either try to accept them. If you can't, then don't spend time with that person if they make you feel bad. And some people, their sense of self-worth is, is basically drawn from the attention that they get from other people. So they're not willing to uh, distance themselves from somebody that's causing negative emotions because they, they'd almost rather feel those emotions than risk being alone or not having attention. Um, so they basically end up creating a perfect problem where they, they say, I don't like what this person is doing to me. And I say, okay, well, why don't you stop hanging out with this person? Well, I don't want to be by myself. And they've chosen, they've basically created a criteria for this problem that makes it impossible for them to solve from where they're standing. So it requires a change in their perception to say, want to, to do one of, take one of these other, one of these two pathways. Right. So what, you know, what do you feel like your job is as far as when someone is telling you, you know, say they've got the, you know, they're in this abusive relationship or whatever, um, you know, but they're sort of dependent on it. What do you sort of, what, what's your strategy and how do you sort of see their, you know, their thinking change or, or what enables them to sort of move past that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, I, I don't like to use the word strategy because there isn't really a strategy. What I'm doing for every coaching client is showing them how their mind is working in that situation. So my job isn't to tell them what to do, like leave this person or stay. My job is to say, this is how your mind is creating your current experience. And this is how that's different from what, how you think is creating it. And when they can see what I'm pointing to, they're then able to access their own wisdom, their own inner wisdom to know what the right thing to do is. And sometimes it's stay in the relationship, but then create a change by, you know, through, through changing their own way of being. Or sometimes it's, I'm, I'm fed up with this, I'm going to, uh, you know, leave and then create create new relationships with, with people that are more aligned with me. Uh, but my job isn't to say which one to do, it's more to show them, look, your, your, let's say your fear of being alone is, is created by your thinking, you know, and probably it's related to something that's happened in the past where they've equated being alone with, with you know, the equivalent of, of dying. They're like, I, I, it's the worst thing I can imagine is being alone. And my job is to get them to see like that that's, that's not true. You know, that you could be by yourself and you'll be okay. Mm -hmm. So if they can see that, they might start seeing how their dysfunctional thinking, by taking their thinking about it so seriously, they've limited themselves, they've trapped themselves. But if they say, okay, I have these fears, I have these emotions, I have these thoughts, but that doesn't mean that they're truly telling me what's going on in reality. I can trust my wisdom and my common sense. Then now they're stepped into their power, so to speak, and they can act in a way that, that's most effective and productive and, and actually be happy. Right, do you feel like originally when people seek you out seek your services out do you feel like they are sort of looking for 
for you to tell them the answer, whereas from what it's sounding like, based on our conversation right now, you're sort of helping them understand the way their mind works and basically helping them find the answer within themselves. Is that how you yeah. look at it? Yeah, I see. Uh, yeah, some people will come and just say, okay, so what should I do? What should I do? And they keep going back to that. Um, but I think a lot of people come and they don't really know what the solution is. But I, you know, when I start coaching them, they're, they're almost thinking like, where is this going? What is this, what is this guy talking about? But then by the end of our call, they, they, they start seeing what I'm pointing to and, and they say, okay, that's, you know, it, it's almost like people enjoy being a victim sometimes. They like putting responsibility on other people because if we have to take responsibility, then we don't get to complain, you know? If I'm stuck in traffic and I'm late, let's say to a meeting, I could say, you know, I could feel like a victim and say, oh, this traffic is terrible, this is making me late. Or I could just not complain about it and think, okay, next time I'll leave earlier. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it feels, it gives you this temporary instant gratification to, um, to be a victim and say, you know, this person's hurting me, the world is unfair, I don't know what to do, tell me what to do. Well, the first thing you have to do is take responsibility for creating your reality, and you do sacrifice the ability to complain and, su and suffer and have other people feel sorry for you, which can feel good, but the cost of, of doing all of that, of of like of being a victim is that you give away all your power. Whereas if you decide I'm responsible for whatever occurs here, even if there are things that yes, technically they're not under your control. Um, but from the if you can take the perspective of I am creating this, then it puts you in a position of power and allows you to access solutions that you wouldn't normally be able to access. So people have to kind of come to grips with that. And I myself used to really be a victim and like feeling sorry for myself. And it was a, it was a little bit disheartening when I, when I decided, you know what, I guess I, guess I can't really do that anymore. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting, this brings to mind, there's an interesting kind of, you know, social psychology concept, you know, where we tend to blame, you know, if it's someone else's actions, you know, that we dislike, we tend to say, they're a bad person. It's it's a, tr uh, a character flaw, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if it's us, situation we you know find all oh, the traffic so bad, even if we should have just left ten minutes earlier, we tend to blame the situation yeah. when it's ourselves, but then say it's a character flaw when it's someone else. Yeah, yeah. When we see something bad happen to somebody else, we don't want to think that it just randomly happened to them because we don't want it to randomly happen to us. So our kind of our brain mechanism is is automatically going to do say, oh well they must be a bad person or they must have done something wrong and that's why this terrible thing happened to them. But then when something terrible happens to us, we want to uh, yeah we don't want to be the reason that it happened. So we say oh it was just bad luck. And the opposite for success, if we see somebody else that's really successful, then and again this is obviously generalizing like not every not everybody does this. But if, if, in general, if we see somebody who's really successful, we think, oh, that guy got lucky. He was in the right place, the right time. He was born with 
privilege. Yes. Whereas, whereas for ourselves, if we have an accomplishment or succeed, we almost always attribute it to us working hard and yeah, and, and just by sheer hard work, we were able to accomplish this thing. Whereas if we see somebody else that did the same thing, we sort of assume that, that they got lucky. So, you know, those are stories. Those are all stories, you know? So it just shows how the human mind creates stories and the stories don't necessarily reflect reality. Right. It seems like almost, to me, the purpose of all these stories is almost to protect our own egos. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, your ego is the part of you that's making all the stories. So it's, yeah, so that's exactly what's happening. It's protecting itself. It wants, uh, you know, I, and I know you and I have talked a lot about the left brain and the right brain. Um, and the book, The Master and His Emissary, which is about this topic. But it's really interesting when you look at how the left brain views the world versus the right brain. And obviously these are generalizations. It's not like one brain does, half the brain does this and one half of the brain does that because the whole, the whole brain does everything. But the way that each hemisphere does things is different. And the left hemisphere, which is where the speaking center of the brain is, which is why I say that's the part of you that's creating stories because if you didn't have language, you wouldn't be able to have a name and label things and, and you know, yeah, and interact with the world in, in, in a creative way. But that part of your brain also tends to, um, tends to view itself as separate from what's around it. And so naturally, if you were to view yourself as separate, then there's, there's threat and there's an element of wanting to protect yourself. Uh, and the left brain has a, a competitive tendency. It tries to one-up uh, the other egos around it. Whereas the right hemisphere tends to view everything as a whole and, and tends to have uh, feel connected to what it's seeing. And again, both brains are working simultaneously. Both hemispheres are working simultaneously, but it's the right brain that receives information from the environment and creates the reality that we're experiencing. And then the left brain sort of takes that um, image or creation of the right brain and just sort of labels and cuts it up and analyzes it. So those stories are, you know, I believe, I suspect, uh, created by the left brain and, and they tend to be kind of like of a comparative you know, comparing myself to another person. Right. What's well, interesting, it, it just kind of came to my mind, you know, I'm glad you brought up, you know, brought that book up. I think one of the big themes it was talking about was kind of, you know, how our society today, at least Western societies, you know, kind of very much kind of slanted towards that, you know, left brain side, uh, you know, sort of thinking of ourselves as separate and, you know, all these egos kind of competing against one another. I'm almost curious, you know, just, kind of the bizarre time that we're in, right? Where we're all kind of, for the first time that I can really ever remember, we're all kind of dealing with the same problem, right? We're all yeah. trying to battle this, you know, COVID-19 going on. Do you feel like that, that might in any way sort of change this sort of 
collective consciousness, if you will, towards more of like a, you know, holistic kind of yeah. focusing on the greater good of, yeah. of just society. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's happening is the left brain, which is sort of trying to maximize, uh, it, it loves numbers. It loves using numbers to compare. So you can imagine that, you know, once the left brain starts sort of taking the lead, it's creating a world of extremes where like you want to have, your worth is determined by, let's say your net worth, how much money you have. And that's, that created, you know, an environment where people want, want to maximize the amount of money that they're making or corporations want to maximize their profits without regard for the consequences or without seeing the big picture of what's happening in the world. And it makes sense that this could only go on for so long before something gives. You know, it's like if, if you're overusing, a, let's say you're working out really hard and you're overusing one part of your body or, or you're just working hard at work and your body's sending you warning signals of like, hey, you need to take a break, you need to restore some balance into your life. You might feel, you know, pain or fatigue or whatever. And if you take a break and you relax and you restore balance, then you'll be fine. But if you keep going, eventually your body will force you to take a break because you're going to get sick or you're going to get into an accident. And I believe that's what's happening with the world today is we've sort of gone a little bit off the rails with maximizing uh, profits and even technological advancement. Uh, at the cost of our united global humanity. You know, we see ourselves as isolated, like my country, if my country's doing great, then it doesn't matter how other humans on the planet are doing, as long as my country is prosperous. But that's not really how the world looks because the, a border that is drawn around a country is a left brain creation, it's a story but when you see somebody from another country, they're a human being just like you. They have the same emotions, the same fears, the same desires. And so to see that person and say, oh, I'm different than that person, is, it's a story that, that's just simply not real. And, and if that's how we've been living for hundreds of years, particularly since the Industrial Revolution, then that's just not sustainable. You know, it'd be like if I denied a part of my body and said, oh, that's not my, that's not my arm. You could probably go for a while, but at some point you'd, you'd have to come face to face with the fact that like, you're, you're a whole, we're, we're a whole humanity on one planet. And it's not sustainable to just take care of yourself while you're hurting other people. Something's gonna give. And so this is an opportunity for us to explore that. Right. Right. And I'm curious, you know, I mean, just with all the access to technologies, right, you know, with how fast technology is progressing, you know, neurotechnologies, you know, particularly what I'm interested in, it seems like, you know, there can be ways now where we can, you know, sort of maybe balance the hemispheres out, you know, even I'll take, you know, an example, just good old fashioned meditation, you know, research has found that it increases the uh, the uh, size of the corpus callosum, the uh, mm -hmm. strip that runs down the middle of your brain, kind of connecting both hemispheres. Mm -hmm. Meditation's been around, you know, for as long as 
humanity has been around practically, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems like, you know, all the, the newer technologies, maybe even just having conversations, how do you, how do you sort of see the shift taking place? At a, at the most, at the most like practical basic level to, to balance your hemispheres, let's, let's call it that, or to, to have a, 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 like an accurate perception of reality, you have to see the stories as the stories. So that's which, which is what meditation does. It kind of helps your mind get used to being quiet. And then when you do start thinking, you notice it more because you've practiced not thinking or at least slowing it down. So that's, that's to me is what meditation does is it, it gives you the ability to say, when you have a thought about something like, oh, that person's different than me. I'm scared around that person. Instead of just taking that as fact, which is what most people do, you then say, oh, that was just a thought that I had, but this person, I have no reason to be afraid of this person. You know, of course you can use your intuition, you can use your feelings. Those are generally coming from the unconscious or, or, or the right brain, but the left brain is more like the logical analytical storyteller. So meditation uh, can, can really help, uh, but, but even without meditating, being mindful of what's going on in your head is the, is, the, is the real key. So you can be in a meditative state without actually sitting down, you know, cross-legged and doing meditation. Um, and then other people have reported other, other methods of kind of rewiring their brain. You know, there's the fields of, you know, neurofeedback, neurostimulation, and then there's research being done on psychedelic therapy which appears to increase the connectivity in the brain temporarily, which then basically drowns out that left brain interpreter, the part that's telling the stories, and, and you get this feeling of connection and oneness, and, and the idea with those therapies is you wanna to try to, to carry that feeling with you, you know? Sure. So I wanna switch gears a little bit and talk about, I mean, it's, it's connected, but as far as the, the clients that you've been working with, I'm curious, you know, do a lot of people kind of come to you with, with very um, kind of external goals as far as like thinking, you know, once I get this new promotion, once I, you know, get this new relationship, whatever it may be, do they sort of think that that is going to be what is going to make them happy? Um, or are you working with kind of maybe a, a sort of different group of people who is more sort of internally focused? Good, good question. Um both i think most of my clients have start off with an external focus of if this was different i would be happy and including me like i i used to think that way too and my own coach pointed out how your happiness is created from within and i forget you know but it's not something that you just learn once and then now you're good you have to keep reminding yourself so i, I forget that all the time and i think that's just the way our, our minds work. So most of my clients, they want something to change in order for them to be happy. And my job is to show them how they can achieve that happiness without changing anything external, which then paradoxically causes that external change to occur. In other words, you almost have to change the way you feel about something before 
the reality itself changes. But if you try to change the reality while still feeling like your happiness is determined externally, then either A, you can't make that change, or you make the change, but you're still, you still feel really unhappy. Or, or you make the change and then you mess it up and you go back to the way you were. Like people, for example, who really want a lot of money, if they believe that their happiness is determined by having um, you know, a lot being extremely financially wealthy, then A, they're gonna have a lot of difficulty becoming financially wealthy, or B, they're going to become financially wealthy and lose it, and then they're gonna have to try again, or C, they will become financially wealthy, but they'll still be miserable because they've continued to place their happiness um, on an external source. Right, and that external source is, is constantly fluctuating, as you're saying, you could gain a ton of money, lose it, and then you're, if you're sort of deciding, if you're sort of telling yourself, you know, my self-worth is equal to, you know, the amount of money that I have, that's yeah. gonna constantly be dependent on some external factors that you right. may not even have much control over. Right. If your money's in stocks or something, the stock market tanks. Right. Your happiness is determined by your thoughts, your conscious and your unconscious thoughts, as are all of any emotion that you feel is determined by how you're thinking. That's why any given situation I can give you, you can't tell me how somebody's gonna feel in that situation if you don't know how they're thinking. Even a really horrible situation, some people might be really distressed by it, and some people might not even really care, depending on their background, depending on how they're processing it. So if you are somebody who's unhappy and you want to become happy, then what needs to change is, what, is what's going on in here, in your, in your thinking. And if you win the lottery, but the, your thinking is still the same, then you're going to feel the exact same way as you did before you won the lottery. And that's what social psychological studies have shown. Exactly. Same thing with negative events. People that get into accidents and, and even become paralyzed, after a certain period of time, their happiness levels are the same as they were before the accident. Why? Because the external world changed, but their thinking is still the same. Mm -hmm. And along those same lines, um, you know, they found with, you know, the amount of money you make, I believe the figure was like, you know, an escalating level of happiness until like, I think the yearly salary was like 70,000 mm -hmm. and then it just plateaued. So yeah. basically the researchers, you know, concluded that it was because, you know, at 70,000, that was enough that, you know, people had all their basic needs met. They weren't stressing about, you know, paycheck to paycheck, whether they're going to be able to pay rent or support their kids, right? So those stressors, you know, are sort of taken away, but getting more money, being able to get a new jet ski or afford yeah. nicer things, whatever, that didn't affect yeah. happiness much. Yeah, yeah. When survival is an issue, when you're in a like situation where your survival is being threatened, then your emotions are actually helping you make decisions and, uh, you know, escape danger. But once you have your basic needs met, then, your emotions aren't really, let's say you feel you know, anxiety at not having the sports car that you want. That's not a useful emotion. You know, it's not helping you because you have everything that you need. You're not, your life is not in danger. Um, there's, there's no reason for you to at least not be like content with your life, assuming there's no immediate threat to your life. 
And it's, it's, it's a practical thing too, because if you're anxious and you're stressed and you want a sports car, that anxiety and stress isn't, is gonna slow you down. You're not gonna be able to function as effectively and be as innovative or as effective at work to get that thing that you want. Right, it's almost like sort of your brain, is, you're, you're sort of devoting too much, too many resources to getting that one thing and you're sort of neglecting all the other sort of areas. Yeah, it, and there's not, it's not that there's anything wrong with, with wanting one specific thing, but the question is, how are you using your mind? Because if you're, if you have a negative emotional state, then your focus is on the fact that you don't have it, or you're worried about not being able to get it. Because again, why is why, where is it your emotion coming from? It's coming from your thinking. It's a direct reflection. So if you're telling, if somebody's telling me, oh, I'm anxious or stressed because I want this specific thing then I, can, I already know that whatever is going on in their head is something to the effect of, I need this and I don't have it, or how am I gonna get it? And those thoughts are going to create a reality where you don't have it. And so you're gonna, you're gonna keep sabotaging yourself. Whereas somebody who is actually grateful for what they do have, let's say they have a, a car that's you know a piece of junk, but they're still grateful for it, like, oh, I'm so glad I have this car, at least I can get from point A to point B their mind now frees up to function more efficiently. They're not using thoughts that are unhelpful. And the space in their head now allows insights to come in that might help them actually upgrade to a new car. Or another way to, 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 to say it is, if you feel gratitude for your car, for even if it's a piece of junk, then you will automatically start creating more situations where you'll feel gratitude meaning you will draw towards you a nicer car because you'll feel grateful for that as well. It's, it's a myth that you have to feel negative in order to create a change in your life. That's two different things. Like mm -hmm. some people think, well, if I'm happy all the time, how am I, I'm gonna be mediocre. I'm never gonna wanna do anything. And that's, a, that's complete falsity because I can be happy and I can see 20 different things that I think could be better and I can work to make them better while still being happy. And I'll be much more effective at doing it. But everybody else, most people think, if I'm happy, then I'm just gonna chill on the beach and not wanna make any money. And sure, maybe you'll do that for a while, but you're not going to be able to do it for, for that long before you realize, hey, I have more potential to fulfill and it would be fun to see what I can do. Right. It, it's funny, it reminds me of like a similar like sentiment, like. That I was hearing amongst comedians, where you know, comedians are very often, uh, you know, depressed. Or, you know, they, they struggle with depression, and you know, I was listening. I think it was one that was, you know, basically saying like, oh well, if if I'm not feeling these negative emotions and wallowing and, and all this stuff, if I'm happy, am I going to lose my creativity? Am I not going to be fun? Like, so it's sort yeah. of that worry, yeah. right? That that if you don't have the hardships, that you're not going to yeah. get all of these these things. I, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday who uh, was an artist and she was saying that some artists need negative emotions to, as part of their craft. And what I said was, well, that's why I don't use the word, I actually usually don't say positive or negative emotions because, because there's, no, there's no such thing as a negative emotion. It's, it's an indicator, it's telling you something. So, so you're not, deciding if it, right? It's your story. If, 
you label something as a, as yeah. a positive or negative emotion. Yeah, yeah. So like I say pleasant and unpleasant because you know, anger, for example, or sadness is decidedly unpleasant. Like if I had to choose sadness or happiness, I would choose happiness because it feels better. But if I am feeling sadness, I don't label it as negative because that implies that I shouldn't be feeling it. But if I didn't feel sadness, then I would never know that my thinking was sad thinking or inaccurate. Or anger is an even better example. If I, if anger is not a negative emotion, because if you didn't feel anger and somebody was, and you were, somebody was, you know, you were thinking the same thoughts that would normally make you angry, but you didn't have the feeling of anger, you would be much more likely to, to commit a crime basically. Or, you know, let's say you had the thought, this, this guy is so annoying, I, I want to punch him in the face. The feeling of anger makes you, makes you realize, wait, I need to calm down. I'm really angry. This is out of line. But if you didn't feel anger, you'd probably just go punch the guy in the face. Same, it's the same thing as with physical pain. Like people think physical pain, they say, oh, it's negative. I don't want to feel pain. Obviously you don't want to feel pain, but it's a good thing that you do have the capability of feeling pain because if you didn't, then you put your hand on a hot stove, you would just leave it there and you know, you'd, you'd have a lot more injuries. So, so that's why I don't call them negative emotions. I call them unpleasant. Like we'd rather not feel them, but when we do feel them, we sh it's a good thing because they're telling us something. Thing is most people don't realize that. At least they think, oh, they're telling me something about my, my reality, something I have to change out there. But they're actually pointing to something in here. Mm -hmm. The other thing, you know, I was thinking is like, you can't have, there would, we wouldn't know what pleasure was without there being pain. Right, that sort of duality of, you know, you can't like just have. If there was no bad, there there wouldn't be any good either. If it would, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. That's that's true. Um, what I've realized is that in my past, I used to think that life was like a cycle of feeling good, then you feel bad, and feeling good, and then feeling bad. To the point where, like, if I was feeling really good for a while, I would start getting nervous. Like, okay, something mm -hmm. bad's going to happen soon. Um, but it turns out that that's also not the way the world works. Like you can feel good pretty much all the time and you'll still feel negative emotions or unpleasant emotions every once in a while. But if you see where they're coming from, you can address them right away and they don't have to last for a very long time. So this, what I try to get my clients to see is that feeling unpleasant emotions, it's not optional. You have to feel them every once in a while. But to feel them for a prolonged period of time, that's optional, you know? Um, you know, and, and the other thing too is, is you can feel an unpleasant emotion if you don't judge yourself for feeling it, like, oh, why am I feeling upset at this? Then it goes away sooner. Mm. So I know we're kind of, you know, getting towards the end of the show. One of the things I'm really curious to just hear, you know, from your journey, you know, how long has it been that you've been doing the coaching for? Um, been coaching maybe getting close to a year. Close to a year. But I've been doing a lot of personal development work for right. a couple of years. I, I was going to mention that, you know, from, and I think we talked about this on one of the previous podcasts we recorded, you know, as far as your, your sort of journey into this, where it was sort of, 
if I remember correctly, it was like you started getting a lot of like feedback, you know, from friends and people being like, Nizar is really like helping, like he really understands, you know, mm-hmm. and he's giving really good feedback. So you were sort of like, sort of pushed into, not, not that you were resisting it, but it was sort of like, yeah, that sort of seemed like that was your path, right? Into coaching. Yeah. Yeah. So my question for you is, you know, now that, you know, it's been about a year, what, when you look back, you know, to when, say your first, your first clients until now, what are the biggest things that's changed as far as you personally, as far as how you're approaching the sessions? What do you feel like you have, have learned from doing this? And, and what do you think is making you into a better and better life coach as you, mm-hmm. as you sort of move along with this? Um, it's, that's, that's a great point. And that's, that's just all, uh, being a good life coach requires is just getting more and more sessions in with people, just like anything else. It's all, it's practice. And the more I, more I practice and don't worry, my, my practice is, I have found has really helped a lot of people, but I now can, can know a lot better what to say. Whether it, you know, some for some clients, it's a lot of listening and asking questions, which is what, you know, my goal is to do for, for most sessions. And then there's sometimes when you step in and you give kind of like more of a teaching moment where you just tell them how things are. I also developed, you know, kind of a an armamentum of analogies because describing how the mind works, you know, is very challenging and different people understand it in different ways. And I found that um, sometimes I'll use one analogy and it won't really hit home, but then I'll use another one and they'll say, oh, like that makes sense. So the more I've, I've been coaching, the more I've been able to convey this message and the more I can tell kind of, all right, this person is almost getting it or this person's not getting it or this person gets it. Now, now we can talk kind of more about more complex things so seeing where the person is how far they are from the understanding that i'm trying to convey right so have you found is there a big difference between say doing you know phone coaching calls versus you know sitting say face to face with a person where you're able to sort of read their body language be able to sort of see if they're you're basically in the way I think of it, you're kind of getting more feedback from them as far as mm-hmm. they're giving you, you know, a puzzled look. Mm-hmm. It's clear, you know, your your analogies aren't working for them, right? And then you can maybe switch gears a bit. Mm-hmm. Do you do you find that sort of thing? Does it alter your your approach when kind of depending on the the format? Well, I do phone coaching pretty much exclusively. Okay. Um, but I do have a lot of conversations with people in person, and I think. I haven't noticed it made a huge difference. I know why it seems like it would, but I'm also really good at reading people's vibration, you could call it, even over the phone. Um, In person, it is easier, but the nice thing about over the phone is um, you know that they're at home, they're kind of ice, they're, you know, they've blocked out this time for you. Uh, Whereas conversations in person, that I've had are kind of like kind of impromptu, like we're, you know, we're at a party or we're at, you know, somebody's house and there's other stuff going on and we're having this conversation. Uh, there's, there's advantages, advantages to both, but definitely one-on-one 
is where the real transformation happens. Like the webinars that I do and the blog posts, those are little tidbits. They're, they're, they're pieces of information that are really useful for people who I've already talked to one-on-one, -on -one, but if I want to really create transformation, I know that I need to basically sit with somebody and have a long conversation. Sure. So tell me, you know, you mentioned the, the blog post. I saw you just, you just did that first one, right? As far as for the, mm -hmm. was it the fearless man? Yep. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So if people, you know, enjoyed, you know, the conversation that we just had, you know, where, where can they check out your work or, you know, when mm -hmm. also, you know, let people know about kind of what's next as far as I, I know you mentioned kind of the, uh, the last webinar doing the, the course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, um, Myself and um, and another and a flow state uh, high performance uh, flow state coach uh, who coaches uh, athletes and boxers. Uh, he we're, together we're doing a essentially um, a three month long course where we're going to have group coaching every week, and the idea is to show people how to learn about flow state and, and integrate flow state into their lives. Um, I'll, I'll announce that on, you know, on Instagram, at which my profile is Taki, T-A-K-I underscore M-D. Um, I'm also on Facebook, um, search for my name. Um, and then, you know, my website is uh, www.taki.coach. But most of my announcements, if you follow me on Instagram, they'll, they'll be there. Um, that's probably the best, best way to, to see what I'm up to. Awesome. Well, Mizar, I'm really happy we got the chance to, to sit down and do this. You know, it's been, it's been fun having this kind of, you know, face to face, Yeah. you know, it's a uh, different, you know, than the, than the virtual. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's been a cool experience. Um, if our listeners, you know, if you guys enjoyed the show today, go ahead and check us out on YouTube. Roscoe's wetsuit uh, is a YouTube channel. Go ahead and like, and subscribe. Uh, you can also listen to the audio version of the podcast at, uh, or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. So go ahead and check us out, any format that you want. All right, and these are, again, thanks so much, man.